0: Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. It's the 31st of March 2022. This is one of our current affairs podcasts uh, in the uh, Interesting Times series. And it's the third podcast that deals with the war in Ukraine. As promised, though uh, rather light in the delivery, uh, this one is about events in the Maidan Square of uh, of Kiev uh, that took place in 2014. So once again, I'm attempting to uh, outline some of the historical antecedents to the the current war in order to elucidate where we're at now. Actually, trying to figure out what's going on the on on the ground, uh, remains very difficult, uh, nay impossible, and what is being said by the various media and the various punditries, left, right, centre, military, economic, political, cultural, Uh, very, very varied and it strikes me as mostly speculative. By now the punditry is really going off on on an orgy of speculation and it's difficult to see what else they would do apart, as I say, from digging down into some of the historicals where we can get at least some kind of archival confirmation of what we're asserting. And and perhaps attempting to analyse, clarify, figure out the various discourses that are uh, floating around and figuring out what they actually do or what they're intended to do or what uh, world picture is behind the various uh, speculations that we encounter when we try and figure out what's going on. Excavating this mountain of uh, mainstream media armchair general punditry does do one thing. It presents us with a big mass of contradictions. Now I do think that the Maidan set the agenda for much of what was to follow. There'll be two parts to this then. Firstly, uh, a broad brushstroke sketch of what went down in 2014 in the so-called Euromaidan, this is what it's known as, the, the series of events. And follow up with an attempt to draw out the, the big issues that, that this historical picture Reveals. The first thing to note is just how messy Ukrainian politics is uh, uh, since uh, the Ukraine became independent of, of the Soviet Union in 1991. As I mentioned before in a previous podcast, this was an agreement between the three uh, uh, dominant. Republics in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics to go their separate ways. This was the Russian Republic, the Belarusian Republic, and the Ukrainian Republic. And of course, this left no role for Mr. Gorbachev as the, uh, the president of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, on that moment, ceased to exist. And I understand that Ukraine's decision was the result of a, a, a referendum or at least was backed up or um, ratified by, by a referendum. I forget the exact order and the dates of these things. Uh, you can look all this stuff up and it's uh, it's very, very fascinating and, and uh, there's uh, so many ins and outs and intricacies once you get down it, into it. Uh, what I'm doing here is I'm not doing that work for you. I am giving a broad brushstroke, a big picture. But nevertheless, I think it will be fairly accurate and and, uh, have some utility for the task that we're setting ourselves. And when I say messy, it seems that dirty tricks are employed across the board from what I can say, and with politicians uh, going to jail when they lose power and accusations of corruption across the board. Again, it it, it hardly seems to matter whether the politicians are on the left or the right. And it seems that there have been assassinations and and those kind of dirty tricks. It's pretty messy. And the, the country has not been really the most kind of stable uh, since independence from where I can see. Also, it was hit very hard by the 2008 collapse. I think the Ukraine is is characterised very well by its name, of Ukraine borderlands, and as again I mentioned before in the previous podcast, you know there's this wide ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, particularly between Russian and Ukrainian, with about a third of the population having Russian as its first language, concentrated in in the east and the south. And of course, Russian was the official language under the Soviet Union. It seems that most school children are educated in Russian. Uh, pretty well across across the country, and even though Ukrainian's the official language of the uh, the Ukraine, R- Russian still has a lot of kudos, and uh, I suppose yes, going back to the the Soviet Union days, and the uh, the quality TV programs are in Russian. The uh, most literature and so forth that's available yeah, it tends to be in Russian. So there are these these complications. It's no surprise then that the Ukrainian people are quite uh, prone to taking into the streets and in quite large numbers. The 2004 events in the Maidan Square, the so-called Orange Revolution, the Colour Revolution, it seems to me is an important antecedent here, uh, not least because some of the dramatic personae uh, figure in subsequent events as well. In 2004, there were questions uh, around the legitimacy of a presidential election. And it's pretty clear that there seemed to be a widespread fiddling of the election results. Uh, These results returned uh, Viktor Yanukovych as president. International observers... Uh, we were suspicious about the veracity and integrity of the election, as were uh, many people on the ground in, in Ukraine. And protests ensued, centering on the Maidan, uh, but also involving general strikes, civil disobedience, occupations and, and things of this type. The outcome was that the Ukraine Supreme Court... Uh, disallowed the results of the election and ordered that the the last round of the presidential election would be repeated. Now, there is a system of of uh, uh, runoffs uh, in the presidential elections in the Ukraine. So there were some preliminaries, and a president doesn't win outright unless he gets a certain proportion of the vote. Uh, otherwise, the, there is a runoff between the two top uh, contenders, and this this election had gone to the runoff. The other candidate was also a victor. Yeah, it was Victor Yushchenko. Anyway, there was a there was a runoff, and uh, a repeat of the runoff under under the instructions of the Supreme Court, and this time. Uh, Yushchenko uh, was elected and served as as the president. This revolution or this uh, ability to influence politics by people going out on the streets and massing in the squares and putting on other uh, displays of uh, collective power, like general strikes and so forth, it was hailed uh, around the world. You know, in the West, as this kind of triumph for sort of democracy and freedom and And all of that uh, rhetorical language that the the US government likes so much was sprayed around liberally. Uh, This rerun of the election, it seems, was fair and transparent and uh, it was very closely scrutinised by by international observers as well as by uh, Ukrainian officials, electoral officials as well. Anyway, by 2010, there's another election, and Viktor Yanukovych, this time, is elected, and in a free and fair election. Pretty well every account of uh, this fellow Yanukovych that I read has it that he was uh, quite corrupt, it was well known amongst the Ukrainian public that he'd had a, a, a wayward youth and he'd done a couple of jail terms for um, assault, I think, in one case, and assault and theft in another case. Uh, and this, there was no secret made of this. This was sort of quite well known. Uh, policy-wise, he claimed that he was in favour of the Ukraine having closer relations with the EU, uh, he wanted a free trade area. He wanted uh, visa-free travel between the EU and Ukraine, and he also wanted uh, perhaps eventual membership of the the EU by Ukraine. He claimed that his ticket was one of neutrality, so neither NATO nor the the the, the Russian defence um, alliances either. He's a Russian speaker rather than a Ukrainian speaker, even though uh, he, he he did use Ukrainian more and more in the uh, latter part of his career, from what I can make out. He's often accused of cronyism, and it's certainly true that uh, a very large proportion of the ministers in his cabinet were from the, uh, D- the Donbass, and or had made their name in the Donbass, and, and that, in fact, that the officials and people with uh, government posts throughout the country were often originated in, in the Donbass. And this was remarked upon and uh, generally known. The uh, family, the Yanukovych family, seemed to be pretty, pretty wealthy with interest in the, the heavy industry of the, the Donbass. The Donbass was the part of the Ukraine that uh, had the old Soviet-style heavy industry in it and it's still an industrial area and a Russian-speaking area. I think it did, in fact, this area, region, belong to Russia until, I think, 1921. Uh, Viktor Yanukovych himself was uh, the owner of a, a huge confectionery fortune. He was known as the King of Chocolate. Even though when he was in office, uh, he did put his assets at a distance from himself, uh, which is generally what happens in in most countries, from where I can make out. At the time of his leaving office, I've seen the estimate that he was worth 21 billion US dollars, and uh, I'm not sure how accurate that figure was. I couldn't find any any uh, foolproof citations but uh, chances are he was worth a few quid and he certainly lived a very opulent lifestyle as the president and I think there's talk about you know shell companies in the British Virgin Islands and all of this stuff that we hear about uh, over and over again I mean basically the guy was an oligarch I would say Uh, some other investigations reckon that seventy billion US dollars vanished from the uh, the Ukrainian people's coffers, the government coffers, uh, during Yanukovych's uh, tenure. Now, it might be that there's a fair bit of propaganda in this, or not. I mean, it might be that he was worse than we've dis- d- discerned us so far. But I think it is pretty clear that the guy was. Something something of an oligarch, and that there certainly was some corruption there. But it seems that uh, corruption's never far away in Ukrainian politics. So, twenty ten, this character gains office, having he, he feels been cheated of it by the uh, the reversal of the Orange Revolution. And as I said, it's a guy who wants to. Uh, certainly, be closer to Western Europe, uh, possibly through EU membership. But it's kind of Russian facing in in, in certain ways as well. Now, uh, twenty thirteen November, the protests start in the Maidan Square in Kiev. And these are basically peaceful protests. From what I've seen of footage and so forth, it seems like young people, idealistic young people, educated people, students, uh, perhaps that, that uh, strata of society seemed to be involved at the beginning anyway. The first protests, I think, were about the fact that Yanukovych had been uh, busy cutting a deal with the EU about greater Toys, greater contact, perhaps a preliminary to join in the EU. And that deal was on the table ready to be signed. And Yanukovych was was, was elected on a ticket of closer ties with the EU. And he didn't sign it. Uh, instead, he signed a deal with the Russians at, at the last minute when the, the EU deal was about to be. To, uh, signed he turned and signed a deal with the russians now the this seems to have been the primary trigger though i think the protests became more general more multi-layered involving groups uh, with different agendas as well and the situation got very complicated sort of quite quickly so this kicks off In November 2013, you can see why these uh, events, uh, these protests in in, in Maidan Square were uh, known as uh, the Euromaidan. Now, the nature of these two deals is interesting. The deal with the EU was not such a great deal if uh, Yanis Varoufakis is to be believed. He says that that deal is rather similar to the deal that the EU and the IMF And the World Bank tried to cut with Greece, which immiserated the Greek uh, population with a kind of hyper-austerity. And it was a hyper-austerity that was proposed uh, for uh, the Ukraine uh, to to bring it into line with global neoliberal uh, um, policies and so forth. And, And then they would be able to become... Closer to the EU, but there was a price, and the price was yes, it was going to be privatised everything that's state owned. It was going to be um, maybe cuts to social security and pensions and those kind of things, uh, freeing the, the the economy up to outside capital, which means US Wall Street capital, and it would have in the short term at least and probably in the mid term given rise to um, even more uh, austerity in, in a country that had been you know in 2014 uh, still suffering from the, the the fallout from 2008 the global crash the subprime crisis resulting in a global crash ukraine took it very hard uh, that a sequence of events. Nevertheless, the uh, uh, nevertheless, a large portion of the population was disappointed that they weren't going to be able to realise their European aspirations. Russia, on the other hand, it offered cheap, some cheap money, cheap loans, cheaper than the IMF, and. I mean, the, the talk was pensions, you know, that your pension, you'll have a better pension uh, if, if we uh, if, if we do our trade and have our, have our uh, economic alliance with, with Russia as opposed to the EU. Anyway, it didn't go down well. Moreover, the Ukrainian parliament had, uh, had passed uh, a motion to sign the agreement which incidentally was called the European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement. But early on by December, the, uh, the protesters were calling for uh, uh, Yanukovych's resignation. Uh, they, f- they were protesting against human rights violations. They were protesting against government corruption and the influence of oligarchs and so forth. And Yanukovych uh, was not so popular by this time. There were enormous protest camps set up in the square, and I, I think there were protests throughout the country as well. I think it did go quite widespread. Police attempts to uh, repress or break up uh, the protests we're, were met with resistance and and violence. At started to creep in fairly early, I think in December, and it accelerated with the the state violence becoming quite uh, quite vicious. And the police were backed up by their kind of riot police, and they in turn were backed up by an extremely violent paramilitary militia or, or something of that type. The violence actually kicked off big style when Yanukovych passed an anti-demonstration law and started passing laws on a show of hands rather than a proper vote in the parliament, uh, restricting uh, civil liberties, free speech, freedom of assembly and so on. And that's when uh, the violence did really kick off. It carried on uh, right the way through till February. The protesters did double down and many people came from around Ukraine to back them up. They'd seen television pictures of youths, or of a young woman actually being beaten by, by these uh, uh, so-called riot police. Uh, and uh, many Ukrainians went to the square simply to support the young people. So the, the citizens doubled down. And the 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 state violence increased, uh, culminating in, in sniper fire, uh, killing um, protesters, which is what happened in February. But again, uh, the uh, protesters did; they doubled down and they, they held their ground. You can see uh, what it was actually like, and it was pretty near. A civil war. Uh, Vladimir Putin, in fact, characterised what was going on as a civil war. You can see, you can see anyway, what was entailed if you watch the Netflix film called "Winter on Fire: Ukraine's Fight for Freedom." Now, ideologically, I think this film's probably suspect. I kind of watched it when I was half asleep, to be honest, so I don't know. But it, it does, I would say, gloss what was going on there as, you know, a simple. Uh, black and white matter of freedom versus repression, and democracy versus autocracy, and so on. It is you know couched in these kind of terms, and you do find yourself sympathising with the protesters. They're, uh, they, they are they are they are protesting for some some kind of basic freedoms, which, to be frank, should never be in question, from what I can see. But there was more going on, uh, on the ground. And uh, I, li- I listen to people who, who who know about this, people like uh, uh, Volodymyr ishenko who's a, a Ukrainian uh, social scientist. I think he works in Berlin, actually, at the university. Uh, and a leftist, with a very good understanding of, of Of the left in the Ukraine. And he says that the the left was actually quite fragmented in Ukraine at the time. And they weren't able to offer leadership, offer uh, left uh, class-based interpretations of what was going on and there, uh, some factions of the left sided with factions of the right who were were quite willing to use violence and some of the left made these weird alliances with this uh, the, the very small far right that was involved in 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 the in the protests and and like them espoused violence and uh, and we were quite happy to fight back against the police uh, in in an armed struggle, others uh, th- saw their role as as as, as helping out, as as, uh, as making sure people were getting food or medical attention and so forth, rescuing people who were being being beaten and so forth. But there was no coherent, unified left response to these events. And commentators on the left over here like, like Brian, Brian Becker and, uh, of course, uh, again, uh, uh, Vladimir Ishenko And uh, the, the Grey Zone guys, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, uh, Aaron Maté, uh, these are guys with a very close eye on, on, on the CIA and MI5 and, and the deep state and the dark government. And they note that the EU and the US government were actually uh, funding the protests, encouraging the protests and, 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 and giving the, the protests uh, publicity, uh, uh, um, cashing in the protests as propaganda along the, the liberal freedoms, uh, democracy, line as really a way of having a go at the Russians as much as anything else. The outcome in February is, is that the protests prevailed and uh, Yanukovych had to flee. And he, he, he fled the country for Russia and, and now lives in political exile in Russia. And, in fact, uh, the government met all the demands of, of the protesters, the chief one being that Yanukovych went. Somewhere in all this, the parliament was stormed and government buildings were stormed, and the, the, the far right were taking the lead in this, which is why people like Becker and uh, and the, the Grey Zone guys like to talk about a coup. They also uh, give us a reason for characterising these events as... Uh, Culminating, at least, in a coup because of the the presence on the ground of uh, Victoria Nuland, who was then uh, an Assistant Secretary of State in the US administration, accompanied by the late uh, Warhawk Senator McCain. And that they were uh, busy manipulating left, right and centre. No doubt, with the aid of the CIA, and uh, we know this because WikiLeaks leaked a conversation between Victoria Nuland and the the ambassador, the US ambassador to the Ukraine, uh, in which they're discussing who they will uh, replace Yanukovych with. You know, just uh, uh, looking through, looking through the uh, the resumes, almost of, of of likely candidates, and saying, "What about well have so and so?" You know, actually uh, treating this as normal business that they would now engage in some kind of regime change, and we know this, and I think it's fairly incontrovertible that they cooed the situation. My own thought about the situation, and now I am being a little speculative, is, is that, 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 that there was something pretty legitimate behind the, the protests. Though going with the, the European Union and the IMF <laughs> would have proved problematic. But quickly the, the event became about much more. And of course, there was the, this interference and uh, this manipulation from from the West. And once it, 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 you scratch the surface there a bit, you do you do start to realise that the Ukraine was the playground for competing hegemonies, competing superpowers, you might say, or would be superpowers. And that we have a proxy war now in the Ukraine, and this was the run up to a proxy war. And the place was was ripe right for it. And one certainly is is always on the side of people who are being brutalised by the state. And there's a certain schadenfreude in seeing a state uh, and a pretty corrupt one and a very violent one, one willing to uh, uh, use some kind of skull-cracking violence on its own citizens when they get their come-up. And so I, I, I kind of generally feel feel pleased about it. But nevertheless, there was a lot more going on as well. It was many. It was multifaceted. And I think it is, in the end of the day, correct to, to see this as a, a coup rather than a revolution. It ended up as a coup. It was never a, a, a proper revolution in the sense that it was going to completely change the economic system. But it was protests that were determined enough to actually overturn an elected government. Although... Corrupt government. Uh, after the the dust has settled a little bit, uh, Yanukovych denied ever issuing ins- orders for snipers on rooftops to open fire on protesters. He denies it, and other people that uh, believe they have evidence to say that he was behind it uh, other people want to say that it was it was the right wing and they were they were trying to escalate the violence by the sniping and, and letting the the government and the army be blamed for it honestly I don't know it was the chaos that ensued was was such that over a hundred people died. Mostly protested, but a few police—I think fifteen, sixteen—police were also killed in in the uh, the violence. So, unlike the Orange Revolution, two thousand and four, this this turned very nasty indeed. So, um, Yanukovych, scarpers to Russia. Uh, and a number of his colleagues in the the Parliament also bugger off and disappear. The result being that the remaining parliamentarians have a quorum to uh, appoint an interim president, which they did, and to... Set the dates for uh, uh, another election uh, a bit later on in the year, which they did. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, this uh, unelected president uh, and, and that, with his government reversed an act of parliament that uh, uh, Yanukovych had, uh, had pushed through which was an act allowing more status to the Russian language and in fact, to minority languages in general. Uh, the basis of the act was that if, if 10% of the population spoke a minority language, that language would have some official status in the regions in which it was spoken. So Russia in the Donbass got uh, some increased status because Ukrainian was uh, constitutionally the only official language. This was reversed by the the interim government that uh, voted itself in place after Yanukovych had fled, and it was technically legal, as far as I can see, for them to do that. Now, Yanukovych had brought in that particular uh, law to comply with EU regulations vis-à-vis regional languages, and this is the EU protecting minority languages in Europe and uh, uh, the Ukraine wanted to align with that. Uh, that one d- didn't go down too well in the in the Don in the Donbas, in um, in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, or in Russia, or shall we say amongst uh, Mr. Putin's uh, uh, circle? And this is the beginning of the eight-year war uh, uh, in in the Donbass because uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk then, then pressed for independence. And the Ukraine government says no. And so uh, this thing escalates into an, an armed fight, uh, with, with Russia supplying arms to the separatists, the Russian-speaking separatists, and then a grumbling uh, uh, civil war, really, in that region going on uh, for eight years. And uh, this this... Current war is really a continuation of that in many respects. People say, "Oh, this is a new war. It's been going for three weeks, four weeks. No, it's been going for eight years. So that's my potted history. What can we draw out from this? The first point, and it's an obvious one, is that the current events, the current war in the Ukraine, didn't just drop out of the sky, it didn't just magi- magically materialise without any antecedents, without any past, without uh, multi-stranded uh, routes down into the, the history of the region and down into the history of the, uh, the cultural sphere which you might say is, I don't know, Europe, and down into geopolitics and geopolitical concerns and penetrating down into the bedrock of the global economy. Now, recently, I've actually heard somebody claim that you shouldn't proceed this way by, by contextualising, historicising, and that you should regard what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment as as uh, as a given, as is. That we should approach it as is. Just look at look at the current facts and and uh, you know, and the, then what you see is, is Russian imperialism and Putin's personal ambitions and concerns for his legacy and these kind of things. So you have this kind of like mono-causal explanation of what's going on. And I think none of that stuff washes, to be honest with you. Even though I do understand, you know, that Cole Popper and people of Daryl want, want us to take a more positivistic uh, um, stance on, on on current events. And uh, I don't know, I think looking at it the way that we've, that we've just looked at it, uh, it becomes apparent that it just doesn't work. It doesn't give you a proper understanding of what's gone on. And you, and, and then I would say that you're vulnerable to buying into these, these simplistic explanations, which are the bread and butter of the mainstream media and the propaganda outfits. Uh, beyond the Urals, this side of the Urals in the US and indeed around the world. And uh, th- those explanations take the form of, oh, it's Russian imperialism, oh, or oh, oh, it's uh, Putin's madness, or oh, it's it's the the uh, the ancient battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. You know this Manichaean universe that we're all schooled in through the, the 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 soft power of the hegemon, uh, commonly known as Hollywood and sort of Superman movies and all the rest of it. And I think that really jumps out if you uh, light upon uh, this clearly pivotal event of the the Maidan 2014, the Euromaidan. It all becomes rather obvious. Now, uh, there are many more twists and turns than than I've given in my very kind of rough, broad-brush sketch of one particular event in Ukrainian history. And just to make a podcast that's like under an hour long, it's necessary to, as I say, to 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 sketch with a big a big brush on a big canvas, you know, and, and just get these broad outlines. There ain't the reality is there are many more twists and turns and 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 many hundred thousand word theses uh, to be written about what's going on. It should certainly be abundantly clear that what we have is a proxy war and the, the Yanukovych moment when he flipped from uh, being ready to sign with Europe on the one hand and and then changing his mind and going for, for the Russian deal on the other it really shows how, how the Ukraine was a pawn at that, at that juncture even way back then in 2014 in, in a geopolitical game. Now, there's there's a detail I didn't actually mention in the body of the uh, the text, and I've only just come across it, but it really hammers this point home. And it's this. Not only did uh, Mr Putin offer the Ukraine ch- cheap loans with a uh, few conditions... Much better, I would say, <laughs> actually, just on the pragmatic level than uh, the, the prospect of IMF-imposed austeri- austerity in order to, to get into Europe eventually. And uh, cheap gas, uh, which incidentally the, was uh, going to be in exchange for the continued use of the uh, Ukrainian port uh, Sebastopol, by the the, the Russian Navy so that it had a warm water port and an all year round navy for 25 years I mean you don't see much about this but there was a deal uh, that very essential to uh, uh, Russia's um, defence strategy having a warm water port and uh, but nevertheless you know the Ukraine could go along uh, could go along with that The, 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 the Russian Navy had been there ever since so uh, it, it wasn't like a, a great hardship, I don't think, to them to to go along with that for, in in exchange for the, the, the cheap gas. But the other side of that equation is, I mean, that's Russia, Russia's carrot. Very inviting. But of course there was also Russia's stick, which was that, uh, I think it was in 13, it might have been August 13, that uh, Russian customs stopped allowing any Ukrainian exports across the border. You don't hear much about that. Now, uh, m- most of Ukraine's trade it, it was eastward uh, uh, towards Russia. So it, it was obviously Yanukovych was in a fairly problematic position, really, you know, squashed between um, a carrot and a stick, you know, and uh, he jumped. Uh, in a particular direction. As I say he was he was um, I don't know, sometimes described as, as as pro pro Russia, you know. And I think he on, on balance we have to say he was facing east, eastwards even though he, he at least uh, on paper said that Ukraine should be non aligned and and, and have, have trade with Europe and and, and uh, and, and some of the goods of, of a closeness uh, to, to Europe, like visa free travel, for instance. But when you come across this, uh, the, 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 the way Russia was dealing with Ukraine, you know, really trying to, uh, to compel um, uh, decisions and, and behaviour by, by the Ukraine government uh, th- th- through not only the, the, the the carrots, but also through through the stick, and then on the other hand, of course, you've got uh, the CIA and uh, Victoria Newland uh, in interfering very, very directly in in the protests in in the Maidan and in the political fallout of of those protests. I mean, incidentally. Uh, uh, this Victoria Newland is now quite a big wheel. She's got quite a, a high up uh, uh, role in the Biden administration in, in the State Department. I'll come back to the, the matter of geopolitics in my concluding remarks. So, another point. is about the nature of, of, of civil unrest, protest, revolution that comes out of the uh, consideration of what happened in the Maidan. And this entails, uh, on our part, just f- focusing in a little bit. And uh, and perhaps, perhaps, given that the Maidan is, is in a... a a a, a linear causal chain with what we've got now, which is an extremely dangerous war in Eastern Europe, uh, involving uh, a, a power which has got the world's largest army, or second largest, I forget which, and the world's largest stockpile of nuclear weapons. And another power which at least in some measure and in some respects, is is, uh, tangled up with uh, the other massively nuclear arm power and and the current uh, global hegemon, although a global hegemon which is on a a pretty fast downward track into uh, the, the disintegration that all empires finally fall into. So there's a sense we that we need to ask what went wrong you know and 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 I maintain there was a sublime moment at the beginning, young people protesting their government, claiming certain freedoms, freedom to protest, freedom of speech, wanting to live in a world in which you can move about and explore and expose yourself to other cultures and uh, all of those wonderful mind-expanding freedoms are what were being claimed uh, by the initial thrust of this protest, obviously then went off in many, many other directions, and it picked up nationalism as it went along, some of it extreme these are the so-called uh, the nazis that that mr putin wants to get rid rid of and it's it's i mean uh, far right parties don't do very well in ukraine they might poll 2% every country in the world got its f- complete far right neo nazi nutters ukraine no exception and uh, they were operating in in this sphere as well and they're pushing for a really extreme nationalism which claims that the 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 Ukrainians are the real white people and Russians are Slavs and sort of inferior, you know, this nat- pure Nazi doctrine. The Slavs were were, were were on a level with Jews and gypsies according to uh, Nazi race ideology. But more generally the thing started to take on a, a, a nationalist tenor uh, in, in some cases, you know, as a kind of a civic uh, nationalism and... Um, Claims about the integrity of the Ukraine borders and so forth, and but of course at the other extreme this, this this Nazi uh, stuff as well. But I think the numbers involved, from what can make out, you know, are are, are sort of pretty damn small. They make a lot of noise though, and of course these these far right Nazis were the people that were most vociferous and most active, I believe. In adamantly opposing the separatist movements in Donetsk and and Luhansk, down there in the Russian speaking southeast of the Ukraine. All of this uh, simply reiterates uh, Slavoj Zizek's point that when you do have these sublime moments of um, civil disobedience, demonstration, mass uh, uprising against. unreasonable government that uh, you really do have to have a care for the day after. It's not enough in itself. Uh, An insurrection or a mass protest or any kind of mass action isn't necessarily revolutionary, isn't necessarily, at the end of the day, going to be in the interests of the, um, the working class. And I think we saw in this, in this case how it actually happens that the sublime, sublime moment doesn't get cons- consolidated. In, in this case, uh, there was notice, from what I can see, you know, that the, the left was fragmented and was therefore unable to, to stand up uh, on the soapbox, if you like, in the square and, and enunciate a class analysis, enunciate an economic analysis. and and, and actually um, give uh, a picture of what was unfolding and what was behind what was unfolding to enable the the people who who were very enthusiastically protesting to have an accurate and serviceable picture of what they were actually embedded in. And it's clear from these events that when you have a vacuum like that, a conceptual vacuum, an explanatory vacuum, uh, a lack of, of, of a very clear focus and aims of, 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 uh, of an action, that you, there's a good chance you'll be captured by the right or manipulated by uh, geopolitical forces which are, are always ready to cash in and uh, utilise to their purposes any kind of insurrection or unrest in any country whatsoever. It seems to me that the broad left needs to get its ducks in a row, otherwise we're all fucked. There's a hell of a lot more could be said about this uh, set of events, and uh, it its relationship to what's going down at the moment. However, I've been going on long enough, so I'm going to conclude uh, with a suggestion that we look at the events in in the Maidan and the current events in the light of the de-dollarisation project China, Russia, Iran India perhaps and God knows who else are, uh, uh, is gradually working on and uh, all of that in the context of China's rise and America's decline Europe is pulled both ways in the, the, the tension that ensues as America declines and China rises. Now, the, the core of American hegemonic power is, is the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And that that currency is backed up by the war machine, the military-industrial complex and the American war machine, as well as by the the Wall Street uh, Minotaur, as, uh, as Yanis Varoufakis calls it, which... Uh, sucks all of the world's money through it all the world's trade passes through and each time it passes through a little commission is taken so wall street gets fantastically rich simply by being at the core of uh, world trade in the the home of the dollar and the dollar being the the the, the hegemonic currency Naturally, uh, this isn't a satisfactory uh, state of affairs for China that now seems to have found a way of uh, bringing its population out of poverty, creating a middle class, creating a domestic market, and in the process becoming the workshop of the world. Uh, And uh, you look at any of your goods now that you buy, any of the, uh, the bits of hard stuff that you buy, and it'll have made in China stamped on it. And this is the same for America you know, it's it's like nation. You, we have nation states that can kind of saber-rattle at each other at, at sort of one level of global organisation. But underneath that, this this seamless globalisation. You know, you can have a, have a war with China if you like, but you'll get no goods. Have a war with Russia if you like, but your gas could get turned off. You know, if you're Germany. And of course, the oligarchs. Like Yanukovych, who we've uh, talked about, uh, live in Richistan. They don't belong to any particular nation state, except at kind of one level of their being. It's another level of being, perhaps the most uh, essential and, de- and um, defining level of their being. They're actually citizens of Richistan. You know, they own a football club in London. You know, it's, it, it it was fascinating to see that. Roman Abramovich, who until recently owned Chelsea Football Club, I think. I don't know much about this kind of stuff. But nevertheless, that he is now sitting in the peace talks or the, the, um, the, the, the negotiations that are going on between Russia and Ukraine to, to attempt some kind of solution to this war that's uh, rumbling on. These people are in Richie's stand. They're everywhere. You know, their money, their influence goes across all these national borders, which creates a fantastic complication uh, uh, as 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 the, uh, the dollar loses its grip. And China, pursuing its interest, and Russia pursuing its interest, and Iran pursuing its interest, are bound to try and circumvent. We don't have to construe this as particularly offensive. It's perhaps defensive, you know. Now you can be as suspicious as you like about China and you probably should be suspicious of any any large government of any large country, you know. Governments do bad things, I keep telling you. And they all do, all of them. The best, the ones you can get enthusiastic about, which are very few, you'll find that somewhere they've got somebody in a torture chamber in the dungeon being tormented for God knows what reason. Everywhere. You know. So I'm not saying trust China, China on this, but, but it, it it seems to me fairly obvious that, that that they have to put in a safety net of a, of a global economy or some some section of the globe that has an economy that's not completely reliant on the dollar, you know, which is tied to a, a military industrial complex. You know, it's the proof of war. We call this. You know, you know, if you know in cryptocurrency, you have got proof of stake, proof of work, proof of trust. The dollar, it's it's based not. And you remember Nixon removed it from the gold standard in seventy one, whatever it was. And uh, so, what was what was what was the what was the what was the, uh, uh, the backing for the currency? Well, it's war. The war machine. Proof of war. I'm sure that top-flight Chinese economists advising the Politburo of the Communist Party are very, very fully aware of all, all of this, and which is why they're proceeding the way they're proceeding. America is flailing around as it, as it disintegrates. I'd say Euro- Europe is pulled both ways. I mean, 15 European countries, I think it's 15, have signed up to the One Belt, One Road. You know, bringing about further integration of Eurasia with with China and China's productive economy. Poland has signed up in twenty fifteen. The Greeks have had the Chinese build them a port, so that they can be a part of this this trade. So Europe has has sort of faced that way, kind of, but of, uh, you know to some extent. But obviously, most of the European countries are in NATO, as as. As is Canada and the U.S., so Europe's pulled both ways. And you can see, like Brexit is 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 the UK deciding that it's gonna it's gonna nail its colours to the U.S. dollar. The rest of Europe, of course, is 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 more uh, equivocal. Hardly any of the punditry's been recognising this, and in fact. It's very rare you hear discussions of de-dollarisation, but this project is afoot and well advanced. The exceptions that I've come across are um, Vijay Prashad, uh, an Indian Marxist uh, journalist historian, commentator, very lucid commentator. He's noticing this stuff. He's getting there. And... uh, Professor Wolf, again, recently, until recently he hasn't really mentioned it, but now he's kind of getting there. And uh, he says that as horrible as what's happening in Ukraine is, and how, how we must uh, have practical solidarity with the people of Ukraine, it's a skirmish as a much bigger struggle is playing. Out, And I say to you, it doesn't have to be like this. And in fact, the way our governments are carrying on and the way we've got into this situation as as a species really just speaks of the, the mendacity and stupidity of our governments. And it's time to get rid of them, and replace them, and the system that they uphold with something sensible which is put together so as to allow everybody on this planet to not only survive in reasonable comfort, but, but to flourish as themselves, as their own unique beauty and strangeness. Thanks for listening and thanks to patrons who uh, continue to keep bunging us the odd dollar which is comes in useful at the present time. And look after yourselves and make knowledge great again.